Welcome to A Journey of Transformation Empowerment. You're listening to Antonio T. Smith Jr. Where ideas ignite, change, and possibilities are endless. Before we dive into today's episode, we have something special for our listeners. Today's podcast is brought to you by a groundbreaking book that's reshaping the conversation around Black economic empowerment. It's Resegregation, Volume 1, The Power Matrix, a master plan for Black group economics with wealth creation, authored by visionary Antonio T. Smith, Jr., Antonio isn't just an author. He's a former top-secret combat special operations intelligence sergeant turned millionaire. His life work championed the economic autonomy and wealth creation within black communities. In this seminal work, dedicated to teachings of Dr. Claude Anderson, Antonio outlines a comprehensive blueprint covering critical sectors like finance, technology, manufacturing, and more. He blends military discipline with acute understanding of systematic disparity. This isn't just a book. It's a movement. A call to action to create lasting wealth and reshaping the economic narrative. Antonio's vision is clear. Drive a significant shift toward black ownership and control. Listeners, if you've ever wondered about innovative strategies for wealth creation or how technological transformation can uplift the black communities, then this book is for you. Join Antonio Smith Jr. on the transformative journey. Pick up your copy of The Resegregation Volume 1, The Power Matrix today and be a part of the reshaping future. Now, let's dive into the episode and explore the possibilities that await us. Lecture 6, Matthew 5, 17-19. It's fulfillment and recapitulation. You called it last week, uh, Matthew 5. 17, 17 through 19. You called it right on. You called it. Um, and so we'll end here. And as far as Matthew goes, and then we'll examine Mark, examine Luke and examine John five in each uh, for sure. And I, it's pretty interesting. In fact, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I hope you guys are enjoying it. And so and so back in repetition, because repetition works, we're posing the question. Uh, what if, but in this case, yeah, in this case, it's what would be the message of the New Testament if only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John existed? And, and again, I told you one of these weeks the story about how I got this question with one of my professors who posed that question, and I never thought about it. And the truth is, um, not only was the question profound, what was more profound was the revelation that the Holy Spirit gave me through d- d- due to the fact of that question. 
And it was not a good revelation, right? <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when the Spirit reveals something to you, it's not always something that makes you look good. Right? <laughs> and so <laughs> at that moment or, or the moments uh, following, I realized I don't know much about what God was doing. <laughs> I knew what God said, right? Because uh, like any good student of, you know, Sunday school or, or you know, any good, any good person who loves the Lord, I've read my Bible. And I didn't need you to tell me to read my Bible. I've read my Bible. But I didn't understand the profound work God was doing when I was reading my Bible, right? Like, so, and, and, and that's, that's the wonderful thing about Christianity. Christianity is a revealed religion. And this, this, this becomes important because now there is natural revelation. And, and, and even Paul, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Paul told us that it was a mystery. It's a mystery, right, right, yeah. That's right, that's right, that's right. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, Paul's like, it's a mystery, and God definitely wants to say a mystery. And so the Spirit reveals to you these mysteries, these hidden mysteries of God. And, and, and it could be he, the more, I guess, maybe the more we get to God, the more he reveals. Maybe God says, this is the time for you to be revealed. Maybe, you know, you're just in the right place at the right time, right? And, and, and it's, it's probably a mixture of all three of those and many other things that we don't have the time to, uh, to list. And so God revealed to me that I knew what was said, but I didn't know what he was saying. And that's powerful, right? <laughs> like that is, that's, that's profound to know God is saying something, but not know what he said. Yeah, go ahead. No, you're doing just fine. Wisdom and knowledge is a principal thing, but with all of our getting, get understanding. Exactly. See, exactly. We all that, but if we don't understand where, why, and when to use it, what to use. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, you're spot on. And so I had, I wouldn't even call it wisdom. I had knowledge, right? I knew what was. <laughs> but didn't have the knowledge from above, the wisdom that, you know, it makes it wisdom, you know. And so I was lacking in some areas, and it, and it wasn't for lack of trying. God just had not revealed it to me yet, right? <laughs> that's, that's just the way it goes. You know, that's just the way it is. Um, he just had not revealed himself unto me in that manner, right? Now, he revealed himself to me for salvation. He revealed himself to me to give me a desire to read, and then he revealed some things. But if you can just look at the Bible and catch it, then there was, there's really no reason for Jesus to have to die on the cross, right? If, if, you know, if you could just look at it and go, you know what, I get it, then what's the point of Jesus dying, right? And so then we get back to that natural revelation. We have this, and Paul talks about it in Acts chapter 2, and, and uh, it's, it's there. Paul, you know, there is natural revelation. You can look at a tree, you can look at the ocean, you can look at the sun, and you can go, wow, somebody had to create this. Now, you're not going to gather from that Jesus died for my sins, right? See, that's what special revelation comes in. Natural revelation is to look around and go, this is amazing. Special revelation is when you realize Jesus Christ is amazing, right? <laughs> and there is the difference. And so, and, and, and I give this, this uh, long, I guess, uh, intriguing introduction about my flaws and my failures because Jesus is getting ready to say something so profound that you miss it if you aren't paying attention. 
And the Holy Spirit is so discerning that the Holy Spirit didn't write, write a, a single jot or tittle, right, that Jesus would say, without you, without him wanting you to catch what he was saying. Every single thing in the Bible, every word, God meant it to be revealed unto us for us to carry out his narrative. And that's, that becomes important because here's the problem. See, I knew I was going to stand up. Here's the problem with um, God's narrative. It's perfect. We are not, right? <laughs> and so, so his narrative has no problem. But when you think about the extreme extremist, the, the terrorist, right? When you think about a Muslim terrorist, and, and I, at no point, because uh, th th there are Muslims who are not, the, actually the majority of Muslims are not terrorists, right? And let's just you know, state that fact. So I'm not, I'm not bashing Muslims or anything like that. But when you think about it, the extremists are telling God's narrative. They're telling it wrong. That is not God's narrative, right? Amen. But that's not what they believe. Amen. They believe they have God's narrative, and for them, they're spreading the gospel. That's what we would call it. They don't call it. You understand what I'm saying? Right. They have the narrative of God, and they are spreading it to infidels or anybody, right? And, but at the same, one, the same place, so take it out of Muslims, let's go to Christians. You have extremists in Christianity and, and KKK, right? This is this is KKK is a Christian organization, and you know a lot of them are Christians. And so now you have people in the KKK that tell God's narrative, but it's not God's narrative. It's it's not even close to God's narrative. So that's why I posed the question: Well, well what's, what is God's narrative, right? What's God's narrative if it only existed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Now watch in Matthew chapter 5, if you would, and go to verse 17 and watch what Jesus Christ himself says. And it's profound. And he keeps the profundity going on in verse 18 and as well in verse 19. And so I'll read it from the English Standard Version. And, and it's very familiar scripture, right? So if you have a Bible, if you have a red letter Bible, you're going to notice that all of this for quite some time is in red. And then you, you, if you been around any Christian circles, you know this is the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5. It's a very beautiful telling by Matthew about what Jesus did out of a course for a very long time or three days and anything. So let's watch what Jesus says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. Now, a lot of people miss the fact that law is capitalized and prophets is capitalized. So in, in Okay, so Chris, let me see. Okay, so this, you have, so for Protestants, you would have what you call uh, the Holy Bible. It's the Bible you're carrying in your hand right now. It has 66 books in it, and it has an Old Testament and a New Testament. Now, until 1521, the, the Holy Bible, as you know of, when it was one Catholic church, had 66 books in it, but it also had what you call Deuterocanonicals, had other books inside the Bible as well, but you're not carrying that Bible because, well, you're not of the Catholic um, uh, denomination because it's still Christianity, right? You're not of the Catholic denomination. If you were Jewish and if you were not a Messianic Jew, your Bible wouldn't be the New Testament. It would just be the Old Testament, thus calling it the Hebrew Bible, right? And so let's travel to the Hebrew Bible. You had three um, segments, it's the, the, the writings, the law, and the prophets, okay? 
uh, excuse me, yeah, writings, which would be poetry, songs and stuff, um, your, your, your law, um, you know, the Pentateuch, uh, well, that's Greek, so it's stay in Hebrew, um, Torah, excuse me, Torah, right? Uh, Matt, you know, uh, I have to say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? Uh, and, and, and Deuteronomy. And then you would have the prophets. So when Jesus, so it was customary for Hebrews to call their entire Bible the law and the prophets because it was sandwiched in between. He, he's saying the law, everything in the beginning, and the prophets, everything in the end. Because the Hebrew Bible has a different formation. For, for the Protestants, the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi. Okay, so do me a favor, if you would, come, come on and have a seat. Good to see you, Reverend. And so for the Bible, we're going to we're in Matthew chapter five, verses seventeen through nineteen, and I'm I'm finished point out the profundity of what God has been doing. But before we get there, I want to explain what the law and prophets is in Matthew chapter five, verses seventeen, verse seventeen. And so in the Old Testament, our Old Testament ends with Malachi, but in the Hebrew Bible, has always ended. With it started with Genesis and it ends with Second Chronicles. Okay, so the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, ends with Second Chronicles. So everybody go to Second Chronicles real quick, if you don't mind. And so if you go to Second Chronicles, if you know anything, Second Chronicles, what you will, it's a retelling. It's it's a it's a retelling of the Bible. It's a retelling of everything that happened in First and Second Kings with all the good news, right? And so it's part of a narrative book. But look at, look at it real quick. It literally ends, let him go up. Okay, the last verse says, the king of Cyrus, Cyrus says to the king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, Cyrus is not a Christian. Well, nobody's Christian. He's not of Hebrew descent. He's a pagan um, king that the Lord has anointed, according to Isaiah, to free his people and sign the, uh, the Edict of Cyrus in 513 B.C., right? And so from 513 B.C., they come back, excuse me, that's not 5, 513, 537, right? So they signed the Edict then, and then they finished the temple around 516, 513. Um, yeah, yeah, so thank you. So, right, and so you have this edict going on. And Cyrus is going, but let's, let's finish reading. Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord of God, heaven has given me, oh, the last verse in 2 Chronicles, because this, this is how it ends. Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord of God of heaven has given me all kingdoms of earth. He has charged me to build him over the house of Jerusalem. He is Judah. Whoever is among all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. What a fitting way to end your Bible, right? If this is all you had, isn't that a great way to end? And that's how it ends. That's how the Hebrew Bible ends. It ends in that manner. Let him go up. So when, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, this is, this is saying the beginning and the end. The same way he says alpha and omega. So when they say law and the prophets, they're saying the entirety of the Old Testament is what you call it, okay? Now, now that we explain that, now that we took about 10, 15 minutes doing that, listen to what Jesus says because it's profound. Do not think I have come to abolish what you know. That's basically what he's saying. Don't think I've come to abolish the beginning and the end. Don't think that I've come to abolish how your Bible started and how your Bible ends and everything in between. I did not come to, so Jesus didn't say I came to abolish the law. See, when we think about the law, 
we think about it as the law, like we think about it in our Protestant minds. The law was what God said do, whether it be the Mosaic Covenant, anything like that, right? What Jesus is saying, yeah, it's included in that. What Jesus is saying, no, literally the law, uh, what do you call it, a pronoun? It's a personal pronoun, right? It's, this, is a, this, is, this isn't like a law. This is the law, capital L. This stands for something, right? right? And so the law and the prophets, like this section of the book, this section of the book. I didn't come to abolish any section of the book you've been worshiping with since the beginning of time. Amen? Amen. This is what Jesus is saying. Now it changes perspective and watch what he says. But I've come here to fulfill them. Now we have something a bit different. Because now he's not saying I came to just fulfill the law. He's saying every single thing that was written in the law, in the writings, in the law, in the poetry, in the prophets, every single thing that was written from Genesis to Malachi, as you understand it, right? Every, every 39 book that you have, every one, I came to fulfill it. Not just the law. It's even the stuff in Judges, right? That he, even what was in Psalms, every word that was there, I came to fulfill it. That's why, and look at it, that's why it's in capital. That's why it's a capital law, and it's a capital prophet. Now, it takes a whole new meaning. Jesus says, now let's bring this back to the Protestant world. Everything in your 39 books, I came to fulfill. Now, what is he, what is he coming to fulfill? Which brings us into our lesson. Oh, oh go ahead, if you... Absolutely. Love is the fulfillment of the law. That's main ingredient. main ingredient. The greatest love we've ever seen on planet Earth is the love in which we saw on the cross. And the reason it was fulfilled, the reason everything that was promised was fulfilled was because of love. Who is God? God is love. Absolutely correct. Absolutely 100% correct. Now, let's identify how this love is being fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And what love is being fulfilled by Jesus Christ? So when you say, when Jesus said, I came to fulfill everything, they only know, besides everything, the creation covenant. They know the uh, creation covenant. That's Noah, rainbow, right? I'm going to put the world back together. And all this is reestablished, you know, and then Abraham comes, then the Abrahamic covenant. Right. So all of you are going to be saved through this nation. They know the Mosaic covenant. This law shall be fulfilled. They know the Davidic covenant. You're going to have a king forever. And they know the new covenant found in Ezekiel 36 and 37 and uh, Jeremiah 29 and 30. This spirit. Right. Ezekiel has to go to a dead place and prophesy to dead things. And the word of right. The 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 word coupled with the wind that blew. Right. Word, Jesus, wind, spirit, made what was dead living. That just made me feel real good, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So the word, Jesus, made what was living with, not by himself, powered by the spirit, right? New covenant is what you would call that, not to be confused with the New Testament. And so Jesus says, listen, all this stuff you've been looking for, I didn't come to smash it. We're not God. We're, God's not starting over. I'm, he's fulfilling what he promised you in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, with the pro-euangelion. Pro he promised that the devil will strike his heel, but I'm going to strike his head. Yeah. So this is what we have here, and I've been hinting at it, 
recapitulation. So here's what's prof- here's what's so profound about the narrative of God. And if you give me 15 minutes and, I, and, and, and just, just give it to me because it's profound and it changed the way I see everything. And I'd love to share it with you. God says, I did not come to abolish what I did. First off, I did it. Therefore, it's good. Lord have mercy. Right. So I, you can't I, if if God was to come down here and fix what he did, then he would cease to be God because that meant when he was doing it the first time, he didn't do it right. And that doesn't sound like you're God. Amen. Amen. Right. So he didn't come to abolish. He didn't come because if I was God, I'd have made a mistake. Like, you know, I, it would have been me. I'd have been like, you know what? I, that just didn't work out. Let me come and send my son. That is not what God did, and I can't stand when people preach such a thing. God says, okay, this has happened. This has been fulfilled. Now, let me show you how the old applies to what is new through this love that he was, that Pastor Temple was talking about. So let's break it down. This creation covenant, this, this starting of the whole world, this creation covenant in which you have Genesis. Watch, how, watch what God does from left to right, which is what you call typology. And, 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 and scholarship, right? So typology is a left to right reading of the Bible while you have um, allegory is a top down reading. Could be dangerous, but in moderation it's good, right? So you have this typology, something that in the old applies to the new, right? Like bell bottoms were in the 70s. They seem to be coming back out now in the 21st century, right? You know, you know what I'm saying? And so here's the deal. The creation covenant is God destroying the world to make it anew. But in the cross, God destroys sin and gives us a new life. Mm, interesting. Let's, let, let's keep walking with this here. In the, excuse me, in the, in the Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant, God says, I'm going to make you a father for many nations. And through your promised seed, I will save the whole world. Amen. Okay. This you should already be thinking about Jesus Christ. Even though he's not talking about Jesus Christ, God comes back and fulfills it better than Isaac did, right? This is every single thing that God... Okay, so, so I'm getting excited because I know where I'm going, right? So here you have it, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, Genesis chapter 17, focus uh, specifically on verse 10, you have a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision. And so it says, in order, for you to, in order for you to show me that you belong to me, all male children on the eighth day will be circumcised and their flesh will be cut away. Two things, this is fulfilled in the, old, in, in, in the New Testament, two ways. One, um, you have it to where Paul says, now the spirit still does circumcising, circumcision, but he doesn't circumcise your flesh. He circumcises your heart. That's right. I saw your eyes light up. You knew it, right? He circumcises. Do you see how this is being fulfilled? They said, I didn't come to abolish circumcision. Jesus did not say I came to it because if he abolished it, then what that means is God made a mistake and there's no reason to have circumcision. What he does is take the circumcision from being a local area in which you cut off the foreskin of a man and you take it to the whole kingdom and you cut off the evilness of the heart. In one instance, you have circumcision cutting away the flesh. In the other instance, you have circumcision cutting away the flesh of the heart. Right? Does that make sense? 
proving it this way in chapter John, um, chapter 20. Doubt, we call him doubting Thomas. I think it's a misnomer. Thomas is doubting that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Now, me personally, I don't think there's too much. I, well, we know it's something wrong with that. But if I was Thomas, I would have did the same thing because when you think about it, somebody rising from the dead is a bit strange, right? That's just me uh, because that's just strange, right? That's just strange. I believe because I have faith. Amen. But when you think about what we're actually talking about, somebody that rose from the dead, I too would have said, now nah, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. Because if I sit up here and prophesy to you right now that I'm going to rise from the dead tomorrow, you'd kick me out of here real quick, right? <laughs> okay, right? But watch what John does and watch how Jesus is telling you how he fulfills it. On the eighth day is when Jesus comes back while they're locked into the, Jew, locked into the room in fear of the Jews. Jesus returns on the eighth day. That's what the text says. On the eighth day, Jesus returns and sees Thomas, right? And, and so why the eighth day? Because on the eighth day, you had to be circumcised according to Genesis chapter 17. Yeah, right. Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. So on the eighth day, Jesus comes back and does a different kind of circumcision to where he didn't circumcise his foreskin because that had already been done. But he circumcises his doubt because the flesh that was in that room in representative, representative of doubt would have hindered the spreading of God's narrative. Does that make sense? Do you see how it's being fulfilled? This is important because because the question we're asking and answering, the question we're asking is, what's the message of the New Testament if it only existed with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? So the question we're answering is the same thing. What's the answer to the question of what happens if only the gospel it had only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Nothing else. No Paul, no nothing, just this. And so you have it to where these gospels are telling you it happened here, now it's happening here. Let's think about the law for a second. The law says that here's what you should do, here's what you should not do. If you do right by the law, you will be right. If you do wrong by the law, you will get wrong, right? Jesus, especially in Matthew, Matthew proves his entire book. Jesus gave the law just like Moses, just a whole lot better, right? Moses gave us the law. Jesus did a mighty fine good job giving us the law, right? And so where Moses went up for 40 days and saw the Lord, part of him at least, right? right? And so Jesus fasts for 40 days, sees the devil, but is the Lord, right? You, you get it? And so what happens is that you have the law, but Jesus says, well, listen, but just because you follow the law, don't mean you actually follow the law. Because there's an intent of the law that you've been getting wrong this whole time. So don't just not kill because you have restraint or you fear going to jail. But how about we don't kill with our tongues or our minds either? Right? So Jesus comes and he takes this law and fulfills it. But let's think about this Davidic kingdom, right? I mean, this Davidic covenant, you have this king who who was killing everybody in the name of God, right? He, he's, he's, right? You pointed that out a couple of weeks ago. He went to Goliath and said, in the name of God, you shall be dead, right? And, and this is good, right? Because you can't slay your giants like this. But Jesus is the king in a different way. He, he, he is the Messiah, but instead of using the sword, he uses love. Right back to it, right? You, 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 he, instead of using the sword, he uses love. And his, his main instrument for this love is the word. Like, this is, right? Instead of him using 
a sword, he says, but don't you remember what scriptures say? <laughs> right? And so this is a different kind of battle. It's not an earthly battle, but a heavenly battle that brings what is good about heaven upon earth. The new covenant. And with, right, not the New Testament, but the New Covenant, Ezekiel 36, 37, uh, Jeremiah uh, 30, 29 and 30, and I forgot to tell you, Joel 2 and 3, right, in those last days, the Spirit of the Lord, right, exactly, right, and Paul, excuse me, Peter quotes that in Acts, right, and 3,000 are added to the church, that's not even counting the, the women and children, and so here's the deal, where this spirit element comes and gives life to their situation, Jesus flat out says, I have to go. But I'm going to send you one, right, that, that will come. So where the spirit was concealed in the Old Testament, he becomes revealed in the New Testament. And so we have this, this retracing and this, this, this radically redefining what it is meant to be from the law and the prophets. So when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish what you know. I came to fulfill what you worship. That's, that's amazing. It is absolutely astonishing and, and, and profound. The, 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 it's just amazing how God never made a mistake. And I find great comfort in that. So let's read one more verse. And let's read one more verse in verse 5. Because look at the following verse. The, the, the proceeding verse. Verse 18 says, For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Have you ever noticed how Paul has to keep arguing book after book after book? Listen, my brothers. God did fulfill his promises. He starts off in Romans arguing for the righteousness of God. Now, when you think about it, God is all righteous. He doesn't, God doesn't need his righteousness Defended, yet Paul has to defend his righteousness. When you think of when you everybody go to first first Corinthians chapter eight, verse six. Everybody go to verse first Corinthians chapter eight, verse six, and I want you to have somebody read it out loud to me. This is a staple. If you ever want to know what the gospel is, this is one of the texts that you can actually run to and discover what the gospel, what the gospel is. First Corinth, first Corinthians eight. Six. Very, very, very profound because scripture. There is only one God, the Father, whom all things can be, be for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we live. Interesting, right? Now, f forgive me for using Paul to prove the Gospels, because that's, although they both say the same thing, we're going to get to that at the end, right? Like weeks from now, but I want to point out Paul. Because I want to show you what he radically redefines in the law, right? This is important because Paul is radically redefining something. So, Pastor Timothy, if you can get Deuteronomy 6 and 4 for me, that will work. Deuteronomy 6 and 4. No, you stay on uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 6. And then Deuteronomy 6 and 4. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6 and 4. So, here we have it in which God is doing some wonderful Wonderful things. Sorry about that. I didn't know you didn't have your glasses. Wonderful, wonderful things that God is doing. Notice that he is retracing the steps. This is recapitulation. And we talked about this before in which the nation of Israel did one thing and then Jesus comes back and does the same thing they did, right? The Jordan River, Egypt, wilderness, right? I, I pointed that out before. 
Yeah, Deuteronomy 6 and 4. I want to make sure that's the Shema. Make sure that's the Shema for me. Is that a 6 and 4 or 4 and 6? It should be 6 and 4, though. Yeah, yeah. Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Okay, yeah, 6 and 4. That's it. That's the one. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. See, you actually... And I shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart. Yes, sir. And with all thy might. That's it. And these words which I command thee this day yes. shall be in thine heart. Look at that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? One. Now you read how Paul radically redefines that law. What does Paul say? Therefore, there is only one God, the Father, of whom all things. And be for him one Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, ah, see it? So here you have one God. Now Paul is saying, listen, this Jesus, brothers, we're not, we're not serving two gods. Amen. We're not serving three gods. It's one God. And in that one God, read it to me again. Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, of whom all things, and be for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Wow. Now, Deacon Temple, if you can get to me 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, chapter 15, which is a resurrection chapter, verses 3 through 4, that would work greatly for me, and this is where we end. I want to point out something, and I want to give you uh, um, not only 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Okay? So here's, let's, let's do this mighty fine short recap. You just read the Shema, Pastor Temple. The Lord Israel, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, right? And he tells you how you should love him. You just read, well, yeah, there is one God. And then we have one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, now do me a favor and read what Paul says the gospel is. For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sin according to the scripture. Okay, you can stop right there. How Christ which is, okay, now, so I, need, I need to get you out the Christ thinking. I need to tell you how the king died for our sins. Because that's literally what Christ means, okay? So now, now you have this, this Messiah language back again. How the Messiah, how the king died for our sins. We got that part. But according to scriptures, not taking out the Old Testament, not abolishing the law, not abolishing the prophets, the king that was already promised died like he was already promised, right? Because Isaiah, no, Isaiah, excuse me, Isaac had to die because he was the promised son. Therefore, Jesus had to die because he was the promised son. But God doesn't let Abraham kill Isaac because it wasn't time yet. He says, I just wanted to know if you was going to kill him. I don't require for you to kill your son. I'm killing mine. Amen. And so here's the deal. We have it in which everything we just proved in Matthew thus far, if it proves nothing else about what the gospel is, at least, at least a big part of, of, of one good section of it, here's what I want to get you to see. I want to get you to see that everything that God did in Matthew I point out to you in the Old Testament. Hey, welcome. Come on in. 
Everything that God did, he did it. He did it well. He did it on purpose. And check this out. None of it, not one thing, did he do spontaneously. What he did in Genesis, Exodus, and all that stuff, he's now fulfilling in Matthew. That's all we looked at. So what's my point here? It's not just that God had a plan. God was so meticulous and so methodical with his plan that he knew before the world existed. He knew when it was only the Garden of Eden. He knew before there was a Rome. He knew before there was skyscrapers that he had a plan and the plan would be fulfilled. Now, if God knew all that, why is it that you're stressing about your bills? That's what I wanted to get to the whole time. Right. If if why are you stressing about the little things in your life when I just proved to you over five weeks that God took this whole world, every little bit of it, every seven billion people of it. Right. God took this entire world and knew everything he was going to do without fail, never made a mistake and fulfilled the promises he made. 22,000 years before, and we are stressing about 22,000 seconds from now. At some point, we have to understand the power and the might of God. Because if he did it, all what you worship on purpose, he can save your life on purpose. Let me pray for you, Lord. We thank you for uh, the wonderful time. Um, I I knew I was going to have to take a little bit longer than expected, but... It was such a a great revelation that you've given to us. God, thank you for being so, so awesome. I mean, look at what you've done. Look at, look at how you did it. I mean, you had a plan and man, you, you really did the plan. Help us to remember that if you can save this whole world without error, if you can save all who accept you with, without error, then you can at least save us from our pain. In Jesus' name, amen. When the pandemic began, I had the biggest problem in the world. Not making money. The pandemic was actually quite a blessing for me as it almost made me a billionaire. I came really close. So the pandemic was a blessing. It was hiring people. And get this, everybody. I had... 48 job positions open during the pandemic, $22 an hour with paid training, and I could not find a single person for two years to fit any of those 48 job positions. Hear me well, 48 job positions, $22 an hour, paid training. And I couldn't find someone, not one person, for those job positions. Now, is it because I hire slowly? True. But it's because I wasn't using ZipRecruiter. And that's a fact. I wasn't getting to the right people for the right position to fit my right culture. And there are so many different things that you can do this summer. As a matter of fact, you can free up as much time as you want to. But if you're not using ZipRecruiter, you're probably not going to free up that time if you're attempting to hire people. So what is ZipRecruiter? 
what is probably the greatest job finder that's out there. And that's why you need Zip Recruiter. You need it so you can find the right candidates. Now, it's not that Zip Recruiter helps you find jobs. It's more accurately that Zip Recruiter takes your culture, takes your job, takes what you're looking for, and immediately matches them with the perfect candidate. And if the if it's if they can't find a perfect candidate, they will skip over that person and then give you the perfect candidate for you. ZipRecruiter uses one of its most powerful tools, which is the technology itself, to match the right candidates up with your job. You can easily review uh, their recommendations and easily review their recommended candidates and invite these candidates to apply for your top positions. Additionally, ZipRecruiter has a complete suite of tools that makes it easy for you to filter out, uh, review, and rate candidates. Four out of five employees uh, have been used by four out of five employers on ZipRecruiter. It is a blessing. And no wonder ZipRecruiter is rated number one hiring site in the world based on G2 satisfaction ratings as of this year, January 1st. My friends, soak up everything I said. It's not an ad. This is a personal testimony of how I found the right people to sit in the right seat on the right bus. Without ZipRecruiter, it wouldn't have been possible. So how do you take advantage of what I'm talking about? Well, you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash B2B. All spelled the regular way. That's Zip, Z-I-P, Recruiter, R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R. ZipRecruiter.com slash B2B. And I promise you, you will be grateful that you did so. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash B2B. It's also in the show notes.